Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am the other co-host, Jack Rossiter Mundley. Today we got a great poem, as we always do. This poem is a poem from a larger sequence um, called Whereas Statements, which is by the poet Laylee Long Soldier. It's from her book of poems called Whereas, uh, which came out last year in 2017, and it won uh, the National Book Critics Circle Award through Grey Wolf. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. It's an incredible book, and I really wanted to just talk about all of it, but time remains itself, and so we're just doing one excerpt, and hopefully that will persuade you to go immediately out and purchase the book because it's really, really, really good. Laylee Long Soldier is a poet. She's an Oglala Lakota poet from uh, South Dakota. But I want to add this bit of context, which I think is interesting. And this is taken from a review of her book, um, which was written by uh, Natalie Diaz, in fact, who we talked about her poem, uh, My Brother at 3 a.m., on an early episode. Also an excellent poem. And Diaz writes in her review of the book, this one part in the introduction to the sequence of Whereas Statements that Long Soldier writes, I'm a citizen of the U.S., and an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux tribe, meaning I am a citizen of the Oglala Lakota nation. And in this dual citizenship, uh, I must work, I must eat, I must art. And Diaz writes, Long Soldier's affirmation as a dual citizen is important considering the less than rigorous practice of American literary criticism, strategic and diminishing valuation of a writer's, quote, racial or, quote, ethnic identity as part of or in place of a writer's craft. And Diaz notes that she's usually referred to first as a Lakota or an Oglala Sioux poet, as one might be called a concrete or experimental poet. She, she writes, Long Soldier is aware of the American tradition of reading a racial or ethnic identity, especially an indigenous language, as an art form itself, and says that she has built a poetics that refuses those boundaries, even when she engages with her Lakota identity. And so I wanted to say that first, just to say that I hope that we are mindful of this tendency of reading indigenous writers sort of uh, as a sort of reductively um, only through the lens of their indigeneity or something like that. And I, um, I hope that we're able to consider sort of the many different layers of the work that she writes. I'm really glad that you contextualized our conversation about this poem that way, because I think that is super important to keep in mind. But it's also a really great way of thinking about this poem. I know you're going to read it and we'll talk about it in a second, but it's a poem that could so easily be categorized as someone writing solely from a place as an indigenous person. And I think that it is very much about that betweenness of citizenship or that dual citizenship and navigating it. Um, and what it really means. I think a lot of that comes through in the poem that could more reductively be read only a certain way. So I think that that's really valuable on a lot of levels as a way to start our conversation. Just as a, a bit of other context, there's an introduction to the sequence of the whereas statements. And I wanted to read that because it sort of is the way the long soldier contextualizes it. And I think it's very helpful. 
She writes, on Saturday, December 19th, 2009, U.S. President Barack Obama signed the Congressional Resolution of Apology to Native Americans. No tribal leaders or official representatives were invited to witness or and receive the apology on behalf of tribal nations. President Obama never read the apology aloud publicly, although for the record, Senator Sam Brownback five months later read the apology to a gathering of five tribal leaders. Though there are more than 560 federally recognized tribes in the US. The apology was then folded into a larger unrelated piece of legislation called the 2010 Defense Appropriations Act. My response is directed to the apology's delivery, as well as the language, crafting, and arrangement of the written document. I am a citizen of the United States and an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux tribe, meaning I am a citizen of the Oglala Lakota nation. And in this dual citizenship, I must work I must eat, I must art, I must mother, I must friend, I must listen, I must observe constantly, I must live. Which is a great introduction and uh, helpful, I think. And so basically this apology document forms the sort of the basis of response for the poem, which we'll get into more later. So without further ado, from Whereas Statements. Whereas my eyes land on the shoreline of, quote, the arrival of Europeans in North America opened a new chapter in the history of native peoples, end quote. Because in others, I hate the act of laughing when hurt, injured, or in cases of danger. That bitter hiding. My daughter picks up new habits from friends. She'd been running, tripped, slid on knees and palms onto asphalt. They carried her into the kitchen. She just fell. She's bleeding. Deep red streams down her arms and legs, trails on white tile. I looked at her face. A smile quivered her. A laugh, a nervous. Doing as her friends do, she braved new behavior, feigned a grin. I couldn't name it, but I could spot it. Stop, my girl. If you're hurting, cry. Like that. She let it out, a flood from living room to bathroom. Then a soft water pour, I washed carefully, light touch, clean cotton to bandage. I faced her, I reminded, in our home, in our family, we are ourselves. Real feelings, be true. Yet I'm serious. When I say I laugh reading the phrase, opened a new chapter, I can't help my body. I shake. The realization that it took this phrase to show. My daughter's quiver isn't new, but a deep practice, very old. She's watching me. Wow. Yeah, I love this one going sort of jumping off the introduction and just sort of like a brief i think there's sort of a lot going on in this poem and might be helpful to start with like a basic summary it begins with uh the speaker reading this quote which is from um the apology 
and the quotes, the arrival of Europeans in North America opened a new chapter in the history of native peoples, which is a horribly euphemistic statement for the genocide that then took place and to refer to the arrival as Europeans as a new chapter is uh, just really brutal. Anyway, then she sort of jumps away and starts talking about how she doesn't like when people laugh when they're actually in pain and talks about how her daughter had been running and fell and was bleeding and in doing that was sort of making a grin uh, even though she was hurt. And sort of the speaker like thinks she picked it up from her friends. But then she sort of has this kind of like great, um, which I think is like a really beautiful, tender parental moment where she's like, if you're hurting, you can cry, you know, feel what you feel. But then she she returns back to the phrase and realizes that she laughed. She had the quiver and that in fact, her daughter probably didn't pick up that habit from her friends, but picked it up from her and that her daughter has been watching her and that she was hurt when she read the phrase. Anyway, I just wanted to do that because it sort of jumps around in an interesting way, but that's kind of like the basic tracking of the poem. I think that foundation is important. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. And so I just love this poem a lot and there's so many interesting things that she's doing in this poem and that she does in general as a poet i don't even know where to start so maybe i'll just start at the beginning one is this is a nice little just a nice moment the very first line when whereas my eyes land on the shoreline of and then the quote starts so first whereas we have that's the beginning and that sort of imitating the legal document that the apology was. And if you read the whole sequence, each um, statement starts with whereas. And so we have this kind of like formal response to the form of the sort of like original document. Then we have this beautiful little image of my eyes land on the shoreline of, um, which is like a figurative way of talking about just reading something or spotting, you know, a particular passage. Um, but framing it in terms of the way that the Europeans landed on the shoreline of the Americas. It's a great little, it's like, I love it, especially because it's the first thing. And so you're not like, you don't know what's happening yet when it happens. And so you don't know the the inverted bite that the the figurative part has initially. Yeah, but I just, I, I really love how that begins. And it sort of like immediately sets up the kind of, I guess it's kind of inversion, but the writing against that she's engaging in, uh, where she is saying irreverently that her eyes are the ones sort of landing on the shoreline. I also like that because obviously the way that that landing is described in the act is this anodyne language of like the arrival of Europeans in North America, but a new chapter in the history of native peoples, which almost sounds like some really annoying documentary narration (laughs) of just like removing all of the power and impact from it. But her eyes landing on the shoreline of that statement through this poem and through the book, she is completely taking over what that statement means in the context of where it originally showed up and completely taking it and making it her own. And in the positive act of doing that and reclaiming it, it also then speaks to what that statement actually points to, which is this violent takeover of the American continent 
from indigenous people. And so both in reclaiming that statement in her own way, it points to what that statement actually is about. So she lands on the shoreline and then makes it her own the way that Europeans landed on, as the statement says, the arrival of Europeans in North America opened this new brutal chapter where they essentially took the continent from everyone. She's taking it back in her prose by landing on the shoreline. Yeah, exactly. I really like that. Um, And that reminds me of just another little excerpt from the Natalie Diaz review of the book, um, which I feel like has helped, helps me sort of, is kind of the way I think is like my initial entry point to the poem and to much of her work in the book. Diaz writes, whereas is an excavation, reorganization, and documentation of a structure of language that has talked the, the United States through its many acts of violence. This book troubles our consideration of the language we use to carry our personal and national narratives, which I love that. Yeah, exactly right. And sort of gets to what you were sort of speaking of. Because this apology is, it's a really horrific document in what it doesn't say and in the way that it rewrites sort of what actually happens. And so the language, there's both the violence that the U.S. enacted, but then there's sort of the language, and as Diaz puts it, that the U.S. uses to talk talk itself through the violence that it enacts. And so in this way, the the medium of the poem is really perfect for this because it's sort of language engaging with language. It's, it's able to um, expose sort of like what otherwise is not present in the, the discourse. You know, it's, it's, I mean, this might just say something about me, but I actually hadn't been aware of the, that the apology had been written in, in any form. And then even if I had, I probably wouldn't have, really known what was in it and the fact that it wasn't even read, but it was just slipped into a, uh, you know, unrelated piece of legislation speaks to the fact that the U S like didn't even want to publicize it that much. Um, and then to suddenly see the language that they use. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think the end of those, so the first two lines, the end of it ends with, I hate the act and then line break into the next of laughing when hurt, injured, or in cases of danger. But I hate the act also then points back to uh, the legal sense of the act, which is this piece of, of legislation. But as you were saying about the language that it actually uses, one of the other whereas clauses in the actual document, because the way it's laid out, as you were saying, it's whereas this, whereas this, whereas this, whereas this, therefore be it resolved. And then the actual text of what constitutes the apology for whereas all these things are true therefore we're going to say we did a whoopsie essentially which is like the level of seriousness with which is treated in the actual document which is like horrifying but in terms of papering over violence or how it's described one of the whereas clauses that i know we had talked about a little bit before recording is whereas native peoples and non-native settlers engaged in numerous armed conflicts in which unfortunately both took innocent lives including those of women and children which is the most ridiculous way of describing what was going on. And to me, seems to echo the way that the president, the current president, talked about the violence in Charlottesville and how there were, you know, people on both sides who were very good people on both sides. This is sort of like saying, well, there were 
there were bad acts committed by people on both sides with absolutely no acknowledgement of the disparity in power or the disparity in number of these kinds of incidents or severity of them, um, because the number of horrific acts perpetrated by the U.S. military on innocent encampments during the violent confrontations between indigenous peoples in the United States are just so much more numerous. The treaty violations are so much more numerous. The brutality and the genocide committed by Europeans is on a scale that does not in any way compute to any acts that indigenous peoples took, especially since like maybe it was their land, which is a whole other issue. But in terms of how the act is describing this, it's essentially saying, well, both sides did some bad stuff. And whereas we did some bad things too, maybe we are sorry. The unfortunately is like mm. so disgusting. It is. It is. But yeah, I, I like putting the poetic language up against the legal language because both poetry and legal documents have this unique almost necessity of close reading attached to them because you need to read laws closely to get to their actual meanings and they are regularly interpreted in a way that poetry is. And they're not usually thought of as being that closely related. They're often, I think, categorized as about as far away as you can get from each other in terms of yeah. uses of language. But there are actually these fundamental like building block similarities and how they are regularly interacted with by the people who use them and and work with them a lot where you have lawyers who are regularly interpreting law by looking at it very closely and really arguing about where commas fall and the use of a word like unfortunately and people who close read poems who are looking at specific deployments of certain kinds of language to really get at the meaning contained within um, and I think that connection is really great that she draws just by calling the book whereas and really having it respond to this piece of uh, of legislation. Yeah, that's a really good point. And another way, too, that I think formally Long Soldier is is working with this, which is sort of like on a bigger level, but then it 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 gets into that more specific engagement is just the the sort of the difficulty of the language and sort of the way that she like basically messes with syntax and the way that sentences work this this is not the most like intense poem in that regard but there's still lots of moments that are quite strange when you think about them in terms of the way they're written so there's sort of like this moment then a soft water pour I washed carefully light touch clean cotton to bandage. That's not a grammatically correct sentence by any means. The the soft water pour, we don't know where that's coming from. That's just a verb that doesn't have a subject almost. Um, and then I washed carefully, that's fine. But then light touch clean cotton to bandage. There's so many words that are like basically missing from the sentence that would make it quote unquote grammatically correct. And then separately, you know, the very end, which is like very poignant, I think, my daughter's quiver isn't new, but a deep practice, very old, she's watching me. There's no punctuation there either. You know, you could say it's a deep practice, it's very old, and she's watching me or something. Like that would be a one way to make it like quote unquote grammatically correct. But it's very deliberately not that. And I and I feel like there's sort of two purposes, um, or at least two purposes, that that sort of move, that sort of syntactic language move does. Is One is it sort of defamiliarizes us from the language itself. It makes us aware of the fact that we are reading. If you think about like a very immersive beach read, 
those the language in those books is such that it's the most accessible and easy to read and it's the easiest to forget that you are reading which is sort of the point it wants you to put you in a world and so the act that gets you in the world for the beach read is is trying to be as sort of like standard and quiet as possible long soldier has sort of the opposite intent especially because in this poem in particular and in the whereas sequence she's trying to engage specifically with the language of the legal document by also defamiliarizing her own language. The reader is like, whoa, what am I reading? And then they're like, oh, I'm reading, kind of. And then they become aware of themselves as a reader. Um, and that sort of move is, I think, really essential to her project because there's one thing to say that this language is kind of messed up. And that is something you can point out. But the other thing, too, is that language has force and the writers have power and they exert power on us as readers, I think. And so if we're aware of ourselves as readers, we can become more, I think, conscious of the power that it has sort of on us or the way that it affects us. Another in some ways, the opposite way, and I'm curious what you think of this, but the other kind of purpose that that language has is I, I feel like it sort of tries to get us more immediately into the moment. So we have this moment like, I wash carefully light touch clean cotton to bandage. The way that the word, the words sort of like keep, it's like they come before, they come like faster than the speaker has time to like jot them down almost. Like that's the way that it sort of comes where it's like, I wash carefully and then it's a light touch and then it's cotton and then it's going to bandage rather than the, the verbs disappear almost and sort of like the awareness of herself as a person who does things drops away and it's just like images, images. Um, and that way you get sort of like almost very close to the thing itself. And it also makes it kind of like, I'm tempted to say eternally present which I don't think is exactly right. But there is a kind of timelessness, not in the kind of like enduring thing, but like that the way that the sentences sort of has. Whereas if you say, I did this, then you're talking in the past tense, obviously. But even if you say, I am doing this, you're still kind of in the past tense or it's the present that happened, but then it's gone. Whereas if you just say, light touch, clean cotton to bandage. These are just images that are there. They're present. They're not, they're almost removed from time. And I feel like that sort of in this, in the opposite way that we get farther away from the action by being aware of ourselves as readers, that move also brings us closer to certain moments by like removing us from time and just giving us like images and sensations. It creates a sense of a perpetual present, to me at least. That's how I was thinking about it when I was reading it, is I feel like the poem is constantly happening. Because like you even get a move, they carried her into the kitchen. She just fell, she's bleeding. Like something that could be or could feel like this is past tense, they carried her into the kitchen, is then brought into a sense of urgency. She just fell, she's bleeding. Like this is the worst thing that can happen to your child. Well, not the worst, but it's like, this is what you're afraid of as a parent might happen to your child, that they get hurt. And then you have to like figure it out. But at the same time, you also, you pointed out the uh, 
then a soft water pour. I washed carefully, light touch, clean cotton to bandage. That then a soft water pour is both the water pouring on the wound, but it calls back to she let it out, a flood from real living room to bathroom, talking about the vocal cry that she lets out, then a soft water pour. So that's both the water that's going on the wound, but it's also speaking back to what just happened. Her cry dies down over time. So you are being uh, moved through time in this very like constantly, the past becomes the present, the present refers to the past. It is this like perpetual moment that's happening. And where I went with that, this sort of like what you're describing the language doing is this sense of betweenness that permeates this poem. So you talked a little bit about uh, in her introduction, how she points to her dual citizenship and how a lot of what this poetic project is for her is navigating that. This is the legal language that my uh, one of my govern governing bodies gave me is in this apology. And in a way, her response is providing the other side of that story. What does it mean to me to be receiving this in a way? But the poem itself is caught between a lot of stuff. And the biggest thing it's caught between, and what I think the language does a really effective job of capturing the betweenness of, is laughter in the face of horror versus horror in the face of horror. Uh, or like reading something really revolting and it being so terrible that your immediate instinct is to laugh. And, or like laughter in the face of pain almost. Um, and it put me in mind of the old blues lyric that showed up in many different songs, but you see me laughing, laughing just to keep from crying. And the sense that I got of how that was functioning in the poem came out in the line, that bitter hiding. Cause it seems to me like this is at first reading the line from the uh, apology where she goes with that is like, <laughs> of course, it's like that bitter knowing laughter of like, this is so screwed up, but I'd expect nothing different, you know? Yeah. And then through this interaction with her daughter's physical pain, recognizing that mask that can go up to hide the pain. And in the end, realizing that what she's communicated to her daughter in a sense is this kind of like knowing bitter humor in the face of violence or in the face of pain that is maybe not a response or a response that's been built up as a defense mechanism to ongoing pain and intrusion, that it's there to hide a pain that should be acknowledged and cried out against, and that these poems are in a way similar to the daughter's cry, and that it's not an externally learned cry entirely. It is also, or an externally learned covering up it is also a covering up that comes from the individual trying to protect themselves. Yeah. Um, but it's not just imposed on you from outside. Because initially she thinks it's that her daughter has learned to hide her pain from her new habits from friends. And I think that could then be read as like, well, is Long Soldier learning to hide from her interactions with others or from an interaction with uh, like the white world or the world of the United States? Is that a learned thing or is that something that's also coming a little bit from within as a personal defense mechanism to ongoing strikes against you from an external uh, harmful force? Yeah, no. Well, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, I sorry. That. I went in about three different directions. That's great. With that one, but. Well, some things that I'm thinking about. One is there is a very interesting parallel between the violence that the United States committed, the Europeans committed against indigenous native people in the US. Then there is the the horrible apology slash 
treaties slash the language, da da da. And that language is its own kind of hiding from the violence. Totally. Then there's the the pain that the speaker feels and the daughter feels and, you know, Native people feel from the pain or from the violence, right? And then there is the bitter hiding, the laughter that is its own hiding from the protective mechanism, as you say. And so there's sort of like two things. There's the violence and the pain, and then there's the the hiding apology, and then there's the hiding laughter. So it, it does seem there's that kind of like mirror effect going on. And I love to return now I've kind of I feel like I'm slowly going back to where you started. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just love what what you said about the soft water pour sort of referring back to the living room like when she's crying, but then also moving forward to the way that uh, the mother is dressing the bandage. A small just technical note is part of the way that Long Soldier pulls that off is that these are very long lines and then a soft water pour is at the end of the long line that's about the crying and then there's a line break and then uh, the speaker's like, I washed carefully, light touch, clean cotton to bandage. So for a moment, literally on the line, you have the pour on the same line as the crying. And so it isn't until you go to the next line that you sort of realize where that, that sentence is going. And so that kind of like use of enjambment and, and lineation is how, is, is one way that Long Soldier sort of pulls off that doubledness. And that also makes me think of, there's this great interview with uh, Long Soldier in Dive Dapper, um, which is this thing that uh, Kava Akbar founded and I guess he no longer runs. I think there's new people, but he did this interview with her. And this one thing that she said, which I thought was like very interesting. And she's sort of talking about like the problem of historical accounts and how they sort of miss things. And she, she says, it seems from historical accounts, we don't often learn much more besides the most basic facts, such as so-and-so battled and so-and-so won and the other one lost, especially for our people. There's this mental picture etched in my mind of some noble or fierce warrior on horseback riding across the plains. But this etching, this empty outline is not enough for me anymore. We don't often get to visualize or grapple with complexity, with real human emotions of the time. In this act, I could see something of myself, and she's referring to a, to a different poem. Um, I could see something of myself, my inclinations, my own humanness. It shortened the distance between history and the present. In that regard, I've also been thinking about the effects of history on our own language and how we use it. And I'm really interested by that shortens the distance between history and the present. Because I feel like when you're talking about that doubledness, even though in that moment with the soft water pour, the, the, the history or the past is a very immediate past of just the past of the crying and then the, and then the present of the, the cleaning, the wound. But the way that she's using language is actually a way of bringing those really close together, of, of sort of closing that gap. And so, as you were saying, she is caught between these things, but she's also sort of like 
very deliberately and proactively almost bringing them closer together so that they don't keep pulling her apart in some kind of way, which I think is, is really, really interesting. And then the other part of that quote that I love is that she could, she says, I could see something of myself, some humanness. And this actually sort of gets to what we were talking about a little bit with the Ada Limon poem about Aretha Franklin is this, the way that Franklin as a song sort of accesses the political often through the personal and the poem of Lamone sort of accesses this bigger universal feeling through very intense personal moment is this poem is doing a somewhat similar thing where we start with this legal language that is referring to a huge swath of history and the scope is so big. And then the poem is actually mostly just about the speaker's laughter to that line and the way that the the daughter notices that laughter. And it, it, it becomes, in fact, a poem about a mother and a daughter, a parent and a child. And then it sort of goes back at the end sort of into a, a, a larger scope again, which, I, which is why I just love this last line so much, but a deep practice, very old, she's watching me. On the one hand, that's just saying... My daughter's been watching me for a long time and so probably pick some stuff up. But the use of deep practice and very old just seems to speak to a much longer sense of time, you know, like that suddenly it's not just one parent and one daughter, but it's, it's, it's this epic scale where there's a deep tradition, you know, of learning from one's elders or something or parents or whatever. Yeah, but it has this kind of circuitous route where it begins with this like very large political legal scope, uh, historical scope into a very tiny moment of a daughter scraping her knee into this like almost like transcendent sort of sense of time. I don't know. Curious what you think about all that. Uh, I think another connection to the Aretha Franklin poem is that this centers on uh, a little girl having an incredibly emotional experience in a tile kitchen. So <laughs> that's true. The tile. The setting is like strikingly similar. Yeah. We've got our little kitchen suite, I guess, going on. But no, I, I also was struck by that deep practice, very old she's watching me line because it does speak to not just a broader span of history, but also it seems to go out beyond the specific parent-child relationship to a lot of them. And I was wondering if that was speaking to, I was curious if that spoke to maybe like a larger experience of the way that indigenous people have had to learn to deal with the United States over time. And is there this, the hiding of pain becoming a necessity, covering it up with some kind of laughter or some kind of knowing, of course, this is what they do. Like, this is how they try and paper over the violence. This is how they make a new law that makes our lives more difficult. Uh, is that something that is learned? Is that something that is taught consciously or unconsciously over time? This very old practice of both on the side of the United States making either laws or apologies like this that either mean nothing or are aggressive. That's a very old practice. And then is this response of, of course, like <laughs> that sort of like, would you look at this shit laughter to cover up the actual like pain and violence on, on the sort of receiving side for the indigenous person looking at 
at that law or this new apology. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I think that's definitely possible. And I also think if that's true, or even if even if there's a another way of seeing it, there's a sense of the speaker at the very least realizing that she has learned this particular behavior. Yes. Um, and it could also be like an entirely universal statement of just like most people do this in the face of pain and it's something my daughter is learning from me. Independent of specific identity, this is a thing that human beings do when we're confronted with this kind of either physical or emotional pain. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's that element and then also there's this element of like, oh, I'm no longer just someone who's learning from other people or making my own defenses for my own life or, you know, my own way of surviving and, and or, or, you know, throughout thriving or whatever. But now I am being learned from, you know, she's watching me and there's an opportunity instead to react differently, I think, where she says, you know, whereas in others, I hate when they laugh, da da da, but here I am doing this laughter. Um, and there's this very sort of acute sense of responsibility, I think, that emerges at the end, which also reminds me of this other part of the that interview. And I just wanted to read that too quickly. Um, she's sort of talking about how the book is sort of like a quote, project of constraints. So she says, so from the very first poems I drafted in response to the national apology, I had many constraints that I'd already placed on myself. For example, one of the main constraints I had on the whereas statements, it begins with the 20 whereas statements, was that I wanted all of those to be written in first person. I am also very careful not to use the pronoun we. I think we occurs only once or twice in there. I say, we have called ourselves Lakota, meaning friend or ally. In that instance, I felt it was okay. Yeah, and I think this is interesting where what um, Pav Akbar says in response is, it's very poignant that you stay in the first person singular. You talk about a lot of readers coming to the work of native writers looking for an artifact, something they can extrapolate to the whole of the experience of all native people, as if saying, quote, because I've engaged with this singular experience, I have what I need. But I think sort of like, it's something that I think a lot about the power and the, the great thing about poetry specifically is, and there's another way of saying what poetry can't do very well, which is like, it's so personal or, or it's so small in a certain kind of way. And you can read historical tract or an essay manifesto and have a sense of a large scope of things. Um, but a poem, and, and you can have a sense of how like a certain system or a certain oppressive like structure operates. I feel like poems aren't for like explaining how systems work per se. Like they're often for describing the what it's like to be within that system. And I feel like what this poem, this this part of the sequence sort of does is, is get at that very intensely singular experience of, you know, of this. And also the moment of like, you know, now there's an opportunity to do things differently. Like if I really mean what I say when I tell my daughter that if you are hurting, cry, maybe I don't laugh 
when I read this or something, you know, maybe I, maybe I cry. I don't know. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because I think in many ways it refutes the possibility of the reading I offered and points to why it can be somewhat problematic to look at it that way. Yeah. But at the same time, it, you know, yeah, I think all of these readings are existing hand in hand or at least like with each other. And I mean, I think it's important for us to be careful, of course, but the addition of one reading doesn't necessarily exclude the other reading, I think. Um, I think the problem comes when we just like settle on the one way of reading, which is the way that we've always read or something like that. Right. Or yeah. decide that this poem, engaging with this poem is like enough. That's that's good. Now I understand the struggles of indigenous people. Right. I don't need to read more poems. Like that would also be the problem. If you look at this poem as somehow being universal enough that it categorizes all experiences or speaks for all experiences, as opposed to seeing it as one very specific and personal reflection on something that points to certain more universal ideas about just how people react to things or how mm -hmm. an indigenous person might react to something, not seeing it as like a universal statement, mm -hmm. uh, which it sounds like uh, Long Soldier was being very conscious to make sure it did not, which is, which is cool. It makes me think of like, oftentimes we talk about literature as a place you know, to sort of experience and practice empathy, you know, like having an empathetic response to another person's experience, you know, like what it's like to be in the shoes of another or whatever. And I think that there's a lot of a lot to that. There's also been a sort of pushback against in the strong terms of it has been like against empathy. Um, in some ways, it also has to do with this, like, empathy can also be put in the same vain as sameness or like you know we're all one person blah, blah, blah. but the flip side i think and this is something that is is something more of like an encounter or like an encounter with difference or something that the goal isn't always um some might say is never but i think isn't always to know what it's like to be that person or whatever um but rather to encounter that person or that experience um, as yourself and sort of have a compassionate or thoughtful response to it. Yeah, I don't know. It's a very, I mean, we're getting sort of, I'm really bringing us far out of the poem. <laughs> no, I think that's really important. I think a lot of it is just understanding the limits of empathy within literature because you can read a book about somebody's experience that doesn't mean that you've had that experience and it doesn't mean that you know the full extent of that other person's experience. It gives you an inkling. And I think a lot of it is just seeing the empathy, the degree to which it is there in literature as not being a replacement for experience. Whether it is your experience of knowing somebody or your experience of actually being there and doing something and not just assuming because you've read a book about something that you really get it or that that is somehow a substitute for having had that experience or knowing in person somebody who has that experience. Um, I think that is where, as you were pointing to, it can get into the category of really unproductive and reductive ways of looking at the world where you're starting to say things like, everybody, we're all human beings, or I don't see color, or I read this book about whatever, so I totally get it when in reality you don't because you have not lived as whatever that other person's identity actually is. 
um, particularly if you are a highly privileged reader reading about someone who is uh, who does not have many social privileges for whatever reason, you don't suddenly get that just because you read a book about it. You don't suddenly get to claim any of that just because you read a book about it. And that is where I think some of the conversation around empathy used to be and is in some ways still is there. And that's the really unproductive side of it. It's not that literature doesn't expand your horizons, doesn't in some ways make you perhaps more empathetic, but it doesn't replace living in any way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well put. I have a very small moment in the poem that I love. In the middle of the poem, after um, the daughter has sort of been carried into the kitchen that is bleeding, it's like deep red streams down her arms and legs, trails on white tile. I looked at her face. Then we have this moment, a smile, line break, stanza break, quivered her. And I just think that is so gold. Partly because it's like a as hardcore of an enjambment as you can get, where you have a very, very short sentence, four words, and you're not just breaking it across the line, you're also breaking it across the stanza. And the smile is the thing that is doing the quivering to the person, which is like really intense to think about. That like it's not the bleeding that's doing the quivering, it's like the, the response to the thing is creating this other response in the form of the quiver. I think it's it's great like poetics in that it draws a lot of attention to the quiver, which becomes sort of the heart of the poem where it sort of returns at the end. My daughter's quiver isn't new, but a deep practice, very old, she's watching me. But it also, because what the way that she's writing is so not what we're used to reading in terms of structure and syntax, et cetera, Sometimes you can just read over it and be like, okay, crazy things are happening. It's just a list of words, basically. Um, I feel like I have, in my lazier moments, I have that impulse. But this is like a very important part. And the separation of a smile and quivered her makes you like have to read it as she's written it. And like, I'm like, she's like, I'm really saying it's the smile that did the quivering. And yeah. I just love that. I think it's great. And then it's followed by a laugh, comma, a nervous, <laughs> which is so great. Like, cause a loud nervous is definitely um, a noun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I was, exactly. I was going to say part of what also makes that line so good is both the break and the fact that it's followed by a laugh, a nervous. It's so great. <laughs> as you were saying, a smile quivered her. Even if that was all on one line, that sort of stops you a little bit and you go, wait a minute. It feels like there should be a T at the beginning and an E at the end and it should be a smile quivered there or something. <laughs> but it's yeah. not. A smile quivered her, which is so intense and cool. Um, yeah. No, you're right. I'm really glad you brought up that little moment because it's a good moment. I think the only last thing that I wanted to mention is sort of on the subject of the laughter that runs through this, which we've touched on a little bit, but the validity of that response to this apology feels so real to me because there is this just sort of absurdity and inadequacy to the response on so many levels. So this response is happening in 2009, for one thing, which is hundreds of years after most of the actions that are atrocious 
literally atrocious. They were atrocities. But it's so similar to other ridiculous apologies that the United States and other major institutions have released. So like in the early 90s, the United States apologized for taking over Hawaii, right? Like, okay, <laughs> that was 100 years ago. Or like in also in the early 90s, Pope John Paul II apologized to Galileo for that <laughs> whole mix up. <laughs> oh my God. Right. And exactly. You are like, it's, it's humorous. It is ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, is there value in these apologies? I don't know. Particularly in the instance of this one, I think that's not really for me to say, but like Sam Brownbeck took the initiative to make this happen. But then the actual substance of the apology is part of what makes it so inadequate and ridiculous. There's maybe a version of this that could mean something if it actually grappled with the history, if it actually gave an apology, and if it actually pointed towards some remedy for the actions taken in the past, it might work. But the actual text of this apology, the Congressional Resolution of Apology to Native Americans, includes at the end a disclaimer that it cannot be used for any future legal actions against the United States or to try and seek remuneration for like past uh Jeez. like illegal action or like past actions basically like the, you can't use this apology as evidence that we did something wrong and we owe you something is how the the thing actually concludes like the text of the legal thing plus the fact that it passed the senate but to get it to pass the house it had to be wrapped into a defense appropriations bill that all of the people in the house of representatives are going to vote for even if they uh think it's ridiculous uh that there's an apology they're going to vote for it because they all have defense jobs in their districts and they're not going to vote against defense appropriations. So that's like the surefire way to get it passed, but it becomes buried in this other bill that no big deal funds the U.S. Army, which is the main force that was attacking and displacing Native peoples. <laughs> so it's just like this whole ridiculous or like circle of awfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the whole argument that was being made against the apology even happening, which is basically along these lines of like, what happened a long time ago? Who needs to apologize for it? And that is super offensive as a stance. But by the time the watered down language of the apology comes out, you almost feel the same way of like, well, what's the point of this? This is nothing. This is mm -hmm. something that is actually at its core nothing. Um, so there's like these weird layers of inadequacy in the apology of its tepid language that like makes it completely you know signify nothing in the end what's the shakespeare signifying nothing line? Sound, it's the it's macbeth tis a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing yep so, so yeah that's that's that i am ashamed should we read it again I think that's probably a good idea. Okay. This is from Whereas Statements by Laylee Long Soldier. Whereas my eyes land on the shoreline of, quote, the arrival of Europeans in North America opened a new chapter in the history of Native peoples, end quote. Because in others, I hate the act of laughing when hurt, injured, or in cases of danger. That bitter hiding. My daughter picks up new habits from friends. She'd been running, tripped, slid on knees and palms onto asphalt. 
They carried her into the kitchen. She just fell. She's bleeding. Deep red streams down her arms and legs, trails on white tile. I looked at her face. A smile quivered her. A laugh, a nervous. Doing as her friends do, she braved new behavior, feigned a grin. I couldn't name it, but I could spot it. Stop, my girl. If you're hurting, cry. Like that. She let it out, a flood from living room to bathroom. Then a soft water pour I washed carefully, light touch, clean cotton to bandage. I faced her, I reminded. In our home, in our family, we are ourselves, real feelings, be true. Yet I'm serious when I say I laugh reading the phrase, opened a new chapter. I can't help my body. I shake. The realization that it took this phrase to show. My daughter's quiver isn't new, but a deep practice very old. She's watching me. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know, tweet at us, or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.